The scripture reading for today is taken from Psalm chapter 66, verses 8 to 20. It's found on your Bibles in the Old Testament on page 528 to 529. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Who has kept us among the living and has not let our feet slip? For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid burdens on our backs. You let people ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a spacious place. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows. Those that my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fatlings with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come and hear, all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for me. I cried aloud to him, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has given heed to the words of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading for today is from a book or a letter which we probably do not read very much. Uh, these tiny books at the end of the New Testament tend to be ignored uh, or neglected. We have a hard time finding them when people tell us to, to turn to them. Uh, and that's too bad, as you'll hear when I read these verses for you. There's a great deal here. In fact, uh, I encourage you in your devotional reading to take one of these letters and, and just to read it straight through doesn't take very long at all, and my guess is that you will find lots of challenging uh, devotional material. So let's see what we find here in the first letter of Peter, chapter 3, beginning with verse 13, and that's found on page 234 if you took a Bible uh, with you on your way in. Beginning with verse 13. Now, who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, and do not be intimidated. But in your heart, sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison. 
who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, uh, I want to talk with you for a little while uh, today about defending the faith, Uh, what uh, Peter calls here making a defense, and what is often referred to in Christian circles as apologetics. Uh, That reading, which uh, you just heard from the first letter of Peter, is a famous one, quite a famous one. Uh, There are actually several good sermons uh, in that text, several topics which would be fun and interesting to explore this morning. In fact, uh, it's possible that questions occurred to you as I uh, made my way through, through the reading. But rather than doing a bad job with several topics today, I'm going to try to do a good job with just one of them. And that topic is defending the faith. In verse 15, just read these uh, words again for you, uh, Peter writes, Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. So I love that little twist at the end. Peter tells us to be ready, have your sword in hand, be like a soldier, prepared for combat, and oh, by the way, whatever you do, do it with gentleness and reverence. The Bible is so exasperating at times. So let's look at uh, together what this uh, means. And, and I want to begin with a story that you are uh, probably tired of hearing. Uh, uh, and I'm sorry about that, but it's the only place I know uh, to begin. Uh, I grew up in a Christian family. And uh, we lived in a Christian community. So everyone I knew uh, when I was a child was a Christian. Uh, or it seemed uh, that way to me. And 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 the people, uh, well, there was one exception. The people who lived next door to us, uh, the Blackwells, were Catholic. And uh, they went to church on Saturday night, which we thought was really weird, although we never said that uh, to them. Uh, But everyone else uh, in my child's world uh, seemed to do things the right way. Everyone I knew was Reformed and Evangelical and, and Protestant. So when I looked around the church on Sunday mornings, Uh, I would see my uh, school principal singing in the choir. Uh, I saw my dentist and his family uh, a few rows over. uh, And so all or almost all of the adults in my world uh, had uh, university degrees and some of them had graduate degrees. And here's the thing, they were believers. Uh, It never occurred to me that my faith needed a defense. Uh, Believing in God, believing in his son, Jesus Christ, as my Savior and Lord, it never seemed particularly odd to me. Uh, And I mention all of this to say that I've I've never had much of an interest in apologetics. I mean, why would I? Where was the need? Uh, But moving to Europe, uh, I have to say, 
uh, has changed uh, my perspective uh, on this. What happens when you live in a culture where the predominant view of the world is not Christian? What happens when you attend a university where the predominant view of the world is not Christian? What happens when you live and work and go to school in a culture where there is open hostility to what you believe, where belief in God seems at best odd and out of date and not very modern and sophisticated? Where you sometimes feel foolish just to say that you go to church. From many of you, I've heard stories about subtle and and sometimes not so subtle put-downs because of what you believe. I have heard stories about a a reluctance to be very public at all about your faith. The people in my village, the ones I've come to know, are certainly aware of what I do and where I work and and what I believe. And I I have not encountered anything that would count as persecution, but there is a definite hesitation when the subject comes up. There is a noticeable silence when uh, Susan and I invite a neighbor to come along with us to the church picnic. How harmless can that be? I have to say, this is new to me. Uh, And to be honest with you, it it, it doesn't feel like persecution, but as we learned at that all-church retreat uh, last year, there's a short short distance between the subtle forms and the more serious variety. As history has demonstrated, we can get there in no time at all. And so interestingly, uh, verses like the ones I read for you today have become more meaningful to me. I hear them differently. And I I pay attention in a way that I never did before. Uh, Peter knew what we experience. He experienced it too. And and, and we don't know exactly what form that persecution took when this letter was written. It depends in a way on when you you date the letter. If the uh, letter was written late in the first century, uh, during the reign of uh, the Roman emperor Domitian, let's say, then the persecution was probably significant. Not terrifying, that was still to come, but it was definitely moving in that direction. So that's Peter's world. But as I spend more and more time in this culture, other parts of the Bible have come alive in ways that I never expected. Let me give you a couple of examples. Luke tells us in the very first verses of his gospel that his writing is based on careful historical research. So he tells us right at the beginning that he's going to present an accurate record of the origins of Christianity. Uh, He's not writing history. He's writing a defense of the faith. These words, he tells us at the very beginning, are meant to persuade. You know, we sometimes think that the gospel writers uh, were writing uh, brief histories of Jesus' life. And in a sense, they were. But they had a far bigger concern. Right? They were making a case for something. Right? They were arguing a point of view, and by the time you finished reading their account, they wanted you to say yes or no. Right? To accept the truth of what they wrote or to walk away. In the second volume of, of what is really a two-volume work, known as Acts of the Apostles, Luke tells the, the classic story of uh, apologetics, namely uh, the Apostle Paul's address on Mars Hill. 
uh, in the ancient city of Athens. This is chapter 17. I mean, do you remember this story? I'm, I'm, I'm sure it, it will uh, seem familiar to you. Paul's first words here are just remarkable. Uh, they are so skillful. He is engaging his hearers on, on their terms. He says, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. You have to smile as you read that, but he said it. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, you and I are not going to debate the leading philosophers of the day as Paul did, or at least most of us are not going to do that. Uh, but we uh, have here, in these words, a guide. A, a guide about how to speak with our friends and, and our co-workers. Right? Th- th- these are not debating tips. Th- this is a, a model of how to do it. The, the story in Acts tells us that, that Paul was actually qu- quite disturbed when he first walked uh, along the streets in the, the city of Athens. His first reaction was to be appalled. He had never seen so many items, and it bothered him. At his core, he was a monotheist. But in his presentation, as you heard, he was calm and and rational. He took something from their world and, and used that as his starting point. In other words, he found common ground with his listeners. And then he made Christianity seem to fit with what they believed to be true. And he didn't speak down to them. On the contrary, uh, I I would say he was respectful and engaging. Uh, But the point you see is this. He he did it. He spoke. He accepted the challenge, knowing that some in the crowd would would laugh, as as the the end of the story confirms. I mean, some of them were openly contemptuous, as he probably knew they would be. Uh, Anyway, for years... Paul's address on the Areopagus to a non-Jewish audience has been the paradigm or the model for apologetics. This is how you do it. But Luke is not alone. Anyone who reads John's Gospel can see the same principle at work to any Gentile or Hellenistic reader. The term logos would have conjured up a Platonic or Stoic Uh, notions of the universal reason, capital R, that was believed to govern the cosmos and and was thought to operate in the rational mind of every human being. Sorry for the Greek philosophy lesson. But what John was doing was precisely what Paul did. He he was finding common ground, a language that that his his readers could understand. And and then this is interesting, he subtly changed it or, or, or modified it. He said that this Logos was, was personal. It's no abstract idea, he said. It, in fact, it's God's Son, and, and, and it, has, it has taken on human flesh. Well, that was a completely new way of, uh, of thinking about God and, and God's relationship to human beings. And here's the point. It was intentional. As, as he sat down to write his gospel, he was thinking... How can I put this so that my audience, who are Greek speakers, how can I put it so that they will understand and be willing to listen to me? I don't think I realized until these last few years how how pervasive this theme is in 
the New Testament. When a topic is, is mentioned once in the Bible, of course I pay attention, but when something like apologetics becomes a theme, and, and when you see it on every page, it, it demands more of a response. Uh, this is really important. The Greek word that, that Peter uses here, uh, apologia, which, by the way, gives us our English word apology, apologia occurs 17 times in the New Testament as both a, a noun and a verb. And I think it's interesting that the word in its uh, original uh, use had a legal connotation. And apologia is what you would give if somebody accused you of a crime. You, know, you, you would have your opportunity to defend yourself or to give your response to the charges that were made against you. And so early Christians took this word and, and because they felt as though they had to provide a defense, they expanded its meaning. And apologetics in the modern sense is what you do when you explain or defend your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's, it's your testimony. It's your legal defense in the face of the charges that have been made against you. Uh, down through the centuries, there have been a lot of apologists uh, for the faith. Uh, every time the church was under attack, uh, every time the faith needed a defense, men and women of I mean, extraordinary intellectual substance uh, would, would provide an explanation or a, a well-thought-out defense, and over the centuries, these people have served the church well. Uh, one apologist I, I, I want to mention this morning, among many, uh, was Francis Schaeffer, and I, I, I mention him because many people in this congregation uh, know him. Some of you knew him uh, personally. Francis Schaeffer was an American evangelical Christian like me. He was a, a Presbyterian pastor, and he's best remembered for starting a, a, a Christian community in Switzerland called Labrie. Uh, where young people, young adults from all over the world, and this was in the 1960s and early 1970s, could come and, and talk about the faith in a setting that was a lot like Mars Hill. Right? Uh, Schaefer was not a scholar, at least not in the academic sense, but he was well-trained. And he had a gift for uh, engaging the questions of, of young adults who were searching for answers. And and he wasn't uh, interested in easy answers. He provided them with rigorous answers. Right? And he demonstrated for the young adults who came to see him as they were backpacking through Europe that you didn't have to be dim-witted to be a Christian. The first time I served as a student pastor in, in a, a church, this was way back in 1977, please don't do the math, uh, my church uh, at the time used a, a film series at evening worship that had been created by uh, Schaefer about art history, uh, of all things. And th so the camera would follow uh, Schaefer as he, in his later hosen, uh, as he uh, hiked in the Alps, and as he would explain the Christian view of things. And, and the title, which some of you will recognize, uh, was How Shall We Then Live? Right? And, and, and what Schaefer tried to do was to show how Christians could engage the world around us, how we could have conversations with people, real conversations, and, and how we could be part of those conversations and how we could critique you know, the prevailing views of, of the day. And it was quite an ambitious project. 
Right? And, and I know, of course, what has been written about uh, Schaefer uh, since he died, and it's unfortunate, and I'll leave it at that. But I don't think any of that diminishes his work or, or, or the example that he left for us in the field of apologetics. There, there need to be places in our lives where we can ask tough questions. Uh, for some of us, the last time we asked a tough question about faith was in confirmation class, uh, unless we were too scared or intimidated to do it even there. Right? Uh, but there needs to be a place. There needs to be a forum where ideas are discussed and, and where Christians are allowed to take a stand. Uh, in a sermon a couple of years ago uh, from this pulpit, uh, I apparently said something like, uh, no one was ever argued into the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember that? Uh, uh, some of you do. And, and, and some of you uh, have not forgotten, and some of you have reminded me of it in, in the years since. Uh, I still believe that's true, although... I would probably want to say it differently. I think the inner work of the Holy Spirit in our conversions, for example, should not be diminished. Right? But obviously there is a place for discussion and, and, and argument and, and careful thinking. We are not going to win every argument. Right? Nor is winning arguments what Peter asks us to do. We are not going to convert every non-believer who challenges us about our faith. But once again, that is not what Peter is asking us to do. What Peter asks us to do, and he asks us to do it in a, a gentle and reverent way, what Peter asks us to do is to be ready to say what we believe. To give our reasons for believing the way we do. And if the rest of the New Testament is any guide, and I think it is, we should be thoughtful about how we do it. We should read a book or two. We should take a class. Right? We should try our best to find common ground with the people around us. We should find language that other people will understand. And then we should make our case knowing that not everyone is going to be convinced. When I was a teenager, I remember hearing something that I'm sure you have heard before, and this question made quite an impression on me at the time. If you were charged with being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And as I said, it got my attention and made me think very hard about my life. And as a young believer, I was determined to live my life so that there would be no question about what I believed. But what I have in mind this morning and, and what Peter has laid out in front of us is actually a, a, a slightly different kind of challenge. Uh, I still think that you and I should live exemplary lives. Right? I, I still think that personal behavior and, and morals and lifestyle and all of that counts for a, a great deal. People should know without even hearing us speak that there is something different about us. But the challenge from Peter to us today, it is different. And it comes down to this. Are you ready to say what you believe? Right? Are, you, are you ready to give a defense? Don't let anyone ever say to you that, that your faith is based on, on, on flimsy 
intellectual reasoning. It's not true. Don't let anyone ever say to you that science has disproved faith. It's not true. Don't let anyone ever say to you that faith it makes no sense in a modern world that's you know, governed by reason. It's not true. The truth is, we have something to say. And the world will listen to us if we prepare ourselves. Right? If we discover a way to present the case. So let me leave you with this. Are you ready today?